morning. See, they talk to the people they like. I'm out here. Oh, I'm sorry. That was, maybe that was for the cheating comment. I don't know. Maybe. Zephaniah is where we're going to pick up today. We are working our way through the minor prophets. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the chair in front of you. And uh, just by good chance, I've got the same page number. So it's page 788 if you're borrowing a Bible. Otherwise, it's at the end of the Old Testament before you get to the Gospels. So Zephaniah probably a book, unless you've gone all the way through the Bible, probably a book you haven't done much with in the past. And so we're going to look at the whole book today as, I, as we work our way through the minor prophets. We started back with Jonah, and uh, something I've learned, actually, of just every time you go through things, you learn something new, and something I've learned is how prominent Nineveh was. It starts with Nineveh coming to faith in Jonah, and then somehow they go backwards, just the city of Nineveh, which is a capital city or a large city in Assyria. But Assyria clearly isn't for God. And Assyria continues to be um, a problem to the people of God. And, and, and especially because the people of God, both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, are not obeying God. So God's blessing is lifted off of them. And so the nations around them, especially Assyria, have been persecuting them, conquering them. And so at this point in the story, we've gone through Amos, Hosea, Micah, Nahum, and now we're at Zephaniah. The northern kingdom, Israel, has been conquered. Assyria has fully conquered Israel. Judah, the southern kingdom, has been mostly conquered. There's a little bit of Judah left, and most of it exists inside the walled city of Jerusalem. And inside of there... Before this, one king had repented, had turned, and had called the people to lay down foreign idols and to worship God alone, and God shows mercy on them and gives them a few, like two more generations of people before they're so disobedient that God ends up having Babylon, who will actually conquer Assyria and then conquer the rest of Judah. So Zephaniah exists right before that. He's at a time where the people of God in Jerusalem and Judah that had changed have gone back to their old ways. And we probably know how that feels. Maybe we uh, sense God calling us to repentance in an area, and maybe we do, and we see some growth in that area, some maturity in that area, and then for whatever reason, we find a setback, right? I'm sure we've all gone through that. And so we see that nationally as these people who are supposed to be worshipers of God, are not doing that. Now remember, we can't compare ourselves with a nation, right? The nation, either Israel when they're one nation, or Israel and Judah when they schism and become two. Remember, our nation isn't founded on a theocracy of following God, right? Like Jesus is not king in America, right? We're a democracy where people vote. Yes, we were founded on some biblical principles, but we're not a Christian nation, much to our discontent, right? Not much to especially the conservative church's discontent. Our nation doesn't follow Jesus, right? That's evident, well, everywhere, right? And so we can't compare our nation to this nation. But what we can do is we can compare the American church generally with the people of God in the Old Testament. We can do a one-for-one -one comparison there because here they're supposed to be following God, here they're supposed to be following God. You with me? So when we look at today, this isn't about our nation, this isn't about the people out there, it's about the people in here. It's about us 
the church and how are we being obedient to the things that God is calling us to. So let me give you kind of a main idea for the book of Zephaniah. We'll put this up. The day of the Lord. God proclaims a day coming when evil will be punished and salvation will prevail. God uses smaller judgments as foretastes of future judgment to show his intolerance of evil. Let me talk about that last line for a second. God uses smaller judgments, like when Assyria conquers Israel. Right? That's not a global destruction, but that is the loss of the nation. God will use Babylon to finally conquer Judah and Jerusalem. God uses these smaller judgments when he is given a warning ahead of time, like, if you don't turn and repent and change, I'm going to do this. And God has been saying that. I'm going to send them in to finish the job. He's even named Babylon at this point. And when God does that, there are smaller versions of him judging sin. And today we're going to see him talk about not only judging the people of God, but the nations around them. So Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1 says this, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. So, there's a couple important things here. We're introduced to our prophet Zephaniah, and we're told that he is the descendant of Hezekiah. Hezekiah is the one that when Assyria was conquering Judah, repented, turned to God, and God delivered them. So that was Hezekiah. He's a descendant of Hezekiah. And then they slip and kind of go backwards a little bit, but Josiah comes, and Josiah, after this, will actually apply some reforms again to the nation. So there is these two people. There's this one that Zephaniah is related to who honored God, and there's the king that he is, uh, that is a contemporary of Zephaniah, who will actually heed the warning some, all right? But then there's this other line. It says he's the son of Cushi. He, Cush is uh, the Cushite people, the, the descendants of Cush. And so what we learn about Zephaniah, which is interesting here, which is not true of, I don't think, any other prophet, he's actually a biracial prophet. And so he is part Jewish, part Cushite, right? Now, the people of Cush were not friendly to the people of God. But somehow, someway, along the line, these two people met, and that he is a descendant of that, a son of that, and yet he is a follower of God. Now, how it goes most often is someone who is from Israel or from Judah will marry someone outside of their nation. And it's not about ethnicity. It's for sure about, not about color of skin or something. It's about worship. And so a man will see a beautiful woman who's a Moabite, right, or something, who worships Moabite idols. And because of his attraction, will marry her. Well, who ends up raising the kids? Well, the mom does. And so ends up passing down idolatrous worship. Well, the woman does, Right? And so because the man didn't prioritize faith, that happens. You see what I'm saying? And so these interracial or biracial marriages that take place, most of them go the way of walking away from God. In this case, it's different. And God uses Zephaniah with his unique ethnicity or lineage or whatever you want to say because his message fits that too. Zephaniah actually has a message to the remaining people of God, but he also has a message to the nations around them. Verse 2, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. 
I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Now God is declaring here, listen, I will judge the entire earth and all the nations in it. Right? I will destroy everything. Now, we're in the minor prophets now, but we just finished the book of Revelation. Right? And so as we work through the book of Revelation, we work through the different cycles within it, from the seven trumpets and the seven seals and this, you know, this, this working through these things, we see that they all tell from a different perspective the same story. They work back and the gospel forward to a place where God judges evil. And the day of the Lord, which Zephaniah will talk about a lot, is all about that final day, that day where God judges all wickedness, all evil, and salvation, the work of Jesus, reigns over everything, right? So it's that day where all the evil in the world is eradicated, and all that's left are the people of God and God himself. And so Zephaniah proclaims this to come. God speaks to Zephaniah and says, there will be a day where I judge everything and destroy everything. And so that is all nations, all people, all things that are evil. And so in these, in these declarations, in these promises or proclamations about the day of the Lord, there is this complete destruction that is being prophesied, and then along the way, God will intersperse smaller judgments. So in the case of Zephaniah, the day of the Lord that God is proclaiming is that ultimate day where Jesus returns, evil is destroyed, and Jesus reigns eternally. That day where we stand before God if we are in Christ and we stand there confidently in the righteousness of Christ. That sin has been judged and that we get to live finally as we were created to live. But then God will tell through Zephaniah, listen, along the way, Assyria is going to conquer the rest of Judah. Or excuse me, Babylon is going to conquer the rest of Judah. In fact, Babylon is going to conquer Assyria. There will be these small judgments, even on the nations that God uses to take out or to discipline his people. He also judges them for their idolatry and their persecution of his people. He uses those things, but they're still evil. And so he judges all of evil. Verse 4. I will stretch out my hand, God says, against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priests. So God kind of zooms in from I will judge all nations and the earth once and for all on the day of the Lord to also I'm going to judge Judah, the last remaining part of it, which is mostly the city of Jerusalem and its surrounding areas. And I'm going to judge them and Here's what he says, why? Because of their sin, because of their false worship. So God's people are sinning as well. They're acting like the nations around them. In fact, that's been the most common theme for God's people throughout the Old Testament is they want to be more like the world around them than a distinct and different people of God. And I think that's something we can relate to. We often want to be like the world we live in more than we want to be like the people of God, to be like the people that God has created us to be. We get caught up in the world that we live in. We get drawn into the things that are here, 
that we can see, that we can taste, that we can touch. And we get caught up in that more than we caught up, get caught up worshiping God. So if you're a note taker, and, and again, we're going we're to talk about at the end of the message, you're going to share with someone today what is one takeaway, something you took away from the message. We do that each week. And so some sins of Israel, right? They're trusting in other humans and other idols. There's some things. They're trusting in other people. Here's how they do that. They're trying to make alliances with foreign nations, right? They're trying to connect over here to Egypt because they're strong, right? Instead of trusting God to defend them, they're trying to make political alliances. They're also trusting in other idols. It's already named Baal. We'll talk about that in a minute. But when God is not answering them, or I think like Alex was praying earlier, sometimes you get a yes, we get a no, we get a not at this time, whatever, right? When they don't get an answer they like, they turn to other idols. And so they're trusting in other people and trusting in other false idols. So let's read this. Let's restart again at verse 4. So God speaking, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That's what remains. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal, a false idol, and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. So the false priests along with the priests of God, quote unquote, priests of God, who are also worshiping Baal. That's what he's saying. Verse 5. Those who bow down on the roofs and to the host of heavens, those who worship the stars, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom, another name for Baal worship. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek or inquire of him. So there's a list of judgments here. So Baal was a Canaanite idol. Now, Canaan was the land before Israel came across the Red Sea into the land, right? came across, excuse me, across the Jordan, into the land, right? And so that was who the people were then, the people of Ai and others, the Canaanites. And they were a wicked people, and God sends his people in out of the desert after they're delivered from slavery. They live in the desert for a season. They go into the land God had promised Abraham eons before that. And God tells them, I want you to rid the land of the Canaanites. I want you to get rid of all the people because of their evil and their wickedness and their false worship. So they do that a couple times, but then they get lazy. And then sometimes they take the people and take them on as slaves. Well, now you just kept their worship within you, right? You just moved that worship into you. Sometimes they made political alliances with other groups of Canaanites so that they could conquer another group of Canaanites. Again, disobeying God. And so what they're doing is they actually preserved false worship in and around them. And so as you can imagine, Baal worship creeps into Israel. And then when the nations divide into Israel and Judah. So Baal worship was this false idol that promised storms like rain and fertility. Now you've got you to go back, you know, what is this, 3,500 years-ish or, or 3,000 years, actually just about 3,000 years, and they're an agrarian society. They live on the crops they can grow and the animals that they have, right? And so animals and crops share a common need, water. And so this, when God would withhold from them, water would cause a drought or a famine to get their attention so they'd repent. They would turn from God and they would, re- they would pray or they would worship or give sacrifice to this false idol, Baal, because Baal promised rain, and fertility. 
And then it says those who bow down on the roof and worship the stars in verse 5, right? They're, they're doing something that's very common today, like astrology, right? People think, oh, they were born under this sign. This means this. Or they read this chart or do this, right? False. God says don't do that again. Anything that is going to give you direction other than the spirit inside you is false, right? Whether that's following the stars or following this or following that or going to a medium or going to a psychic or going to this, going to that. When you look for direction outside of God, you're doing what they're being judged for. Does that make sense? You're looking for something God has not revealed to you. And if God has not revealed to you, there's a reason. You try and circumvent God, you are now going against God. You're practicing an idolatry. And so then there are judgments against those who don't repent. Verse 6 says this, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Right? There have been these course corrections with Hezekiah, and then there will be again with Josiah. And so when a king would call them to repentance, when everybody is destroying around them, and they get fearful enough, they turn to God. But then inside of that, when things are going better, they forget. Or when God gives them an answer they don't like, they choose to be disobedient. So those who no longer even worship God don't inquire of God. He says, I'm judging you too. So what do we trust in the American church? Remember, our parallel is not our nation. We're not supposed to look outside and point to the mosque down the street and say they're to blame. Well, maybe they're wrong. That's not who's being talked to today. You with me? You with me? It's for us, not them. Who is it that we in the church tend to really, what, what is it that we in the church tend to really trust in? Right? We, we trust in the American church highly in education and income, Right? Like, we want our kids to get a good education. We want our kids to have a good income. We want them to be doctors and lawyers or what? Maybe not lawyers, but we, you know, you get the point, right? I can say that now because Bill Robeson moved. So anyhow, all right. So we want to, because we want them to have a good income. Now there's nothing inherently evil about a good education or a good income, but the sacrifices we make around our faith towards that end show its place and its value more than our value on our faith? Do we give more to raising children who get a good education to make a good income than we do? Do we can give more to that than we do to discipling in them in their faith? Make sense? Do we try harder to play on teams that will hopefully net result a, a scholarship to get our kids into a school, even if it pulls us out of church? How much and what do we sacrifice to that end? We trust in politics more than the gospel. If we don't like something, we want to root for the team that'll change it. We don't want to go share the gospel in our community to change them from within. You with me? Right? We trust in individualism more than the community of faith. It's more about me. When God says, no, it's more about the community. Right? Verse 7. So, Here's what God calls them to. He says, be silent before the Lord. We just sang a song, by the way, good song choice. We just sang this song about being silent before the Lord. So listen to verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guest. So be silent before the day of the Lord. This, this call is to be silent, to 
Because the day of the Lord, the day of great judgment, the day where everything comes to an end, whether that's a partial version of that, where somebody comes in and wipes out Southern California, or somebody comes in and wipes out Jerusalem, whether it's a partial version of that, or it's the actual end of the world, either one. What he's saying is be silent, right? Stop longing for other things. Be silent before God. Right? We're a, a restless people. I am a restless person. Right? There is constantly something. Silence is not my strong suit. Right? And, and we tend to not be silent before the Lord. We take about five minutes in every service. Alice leads us through prayer each week. And there are more struggles with that five minutes of prayer. Because we're uncomfortable we don't know what to say, or we don't want to say it out loud, or, we don't, or it's silent, right? Or there was an email, I've been a pastor's group, like this kind of email group, and people were discussing this week about music while you're serving communion. So like after the message, when we come up, either somebody on keyboard or Alex on guitar will be playing something lightly in the background. Here's why. I'll be really honest with you. No holy good reason for it. No Jesus-centered reason. It's because we're uncomfortable with silence. That should cause us concern, right? We're, we're not okay with silence, right? In fact, we're really in that holy moment of receiving the symbolic elements, the, the means of grace, the, empower, the spiritual empowerment of communion, where we're receiving the, the, the bread that shows us the broken body of Christ and the cup that reminds us of the shed blood of Christ. In that moment, when we call ourselves to reflect, to pray, to repent of sin, to forgive someone if we're withholding forgiveness, in that moment, there's often so much just kind of talking and chit-chat, and, and we're not good at silent. We're restless inside of us. It's our desires that drive that. He says, be silent before the Lord because the day of judgment, the day of the Lord is coming. That's his call. That's what we are called to do. Be silent for the Lord. Now, I want to read it one more time because there's another part of this. It's incredibly important. Verse 7, so be silent before the Lord. There's this strong warning. Be silent for the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. So the day of the Lord, judgment is near, whether it's partial or complete, God doesn't let sin live forever. God doesn't live things that are contrary to him go forever. I don't know what that means for Southern California where we live, but it's not very godly around here. So I imagine this doesn't go forever. I don't know what that means, I'm just saying, right? But listen to what he says. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. God has prepared those who are to die for their sins, and God has prepared those who are to be found in Christ. And here's what that means. So when death comes, whether it's the entire judgment of the entire world once for all, whether it's that moment, or it's something that causes individual or collective death, whatever it is, there comes a time when we will die. All of us will die. That, that is the one kind of ubiquitous, universal truth, we will all die. And that moment, also true, comes suddenly. 
most of the time. Right? You may slowly decline into something that, that kind of finally takes you, but still comes. It could be on the way home from church, right? We pray that's not true. It could be sudden and often is. When that moment comes, where are we? That's what he's saying. When that moment comes, either there are two choices. You can die and pay the penalty for your own sins, or you can be found in Christ who paid for your sins. So here's how Zephaniah is setting that up. See, the gospel is this, that God created you, designed you, loves you, right? There's a God, one God, one true eternal living God who exists forever. Everything else is false. Every other worship is false. And that God created you, made you, loves you, designed you. And your design is this, that you are made to give glory to God, to worship God. Not what we do when we sing, what we do as we live, that we would bring glory to God. And that anything outside of that, as we live for ourselves or we get off track or we don't do that at all, the Bible just calls that sin, right? Sin is not just those aggressive bad things that we do. It's anything that doesn't glorify God. It's anything. You could do the right thing for the wrong reason, sin. You could just not do the right thing, even though you love Jesus, sin, right? And sin is that thing that has severed our relationship with God, right? Like, like, like sin in a marriage, like infidelity in marriage just separates, causes that division. And so we're left being an imperfect, broken, sinful human being, and the disconnect between a holy and just God exists, and so God, knowing we could never work our way back up, God himself comes to us. So Jesus becomes flesh, the son of God. Very God and yet very human, right? All God and yet somehow, mysteriously, all human. Comes and lives the life that you and I cannot live and choose not to live, if we're being honest. And then gives his life for us. That he will take our penalty that not only was he a sinless human being, but he is also eternal God who gave his life for us. And that he takes our penalty both on his back, his body, as he is beaten before his death, and then death on a cross. And that that death, as we will say in communion today, that that is a covenant, that blood, that broken body is a covenant that our sins, if we're in Christ, our sin is forgiven. See, God is a just God. And a penalty must be paid. So your sin must be paid for. It can be paid for by you, or it can be paid for by Jesus. You see, this is the message that exists from Genesis 3 on forward. When sin enters into human history, right there, when sin enters in, God proclaims this gospel message of Christ to come. And then what does God do to cover their shame? God offers an animal in their place. He skins the animal to cover, their, to cover them up. He has to strip them of their efforts of trying to cover themselves up with leaves. But you can't skin that animal without death. See, sin equals death. And you either pay the penalty you have created and caused and deserve, or there is a sacrifice. There's a substitute. And God provides that substitute in the garden proclaiming Christ to come. Jesus is that substitute, right? And so what must we do to be saved? We, we know, like, listen, I need to believe that Jesus lived and died and rose again. True. 
But belief can't live here. Belief must transform your life. Right? If you believe the fire is hot, it's not just a fact. It changes how you relate to fire. Right? If, if you believe that whatever it is is good for you, you will do it. If bad for you, you won't do it. If you believe it truly, it will change your action. So belief that lives here is not true belief. See, belief that transforms is saving faith. It's not works to earn or merit God's favor. It's just saying you actually truly believe because your belief will change what you do. That will shape how you live. We were just talking earlier this week, and, and I, two Sundays ago, I think I used the same language, that there's a distinction in between believing in Jesus as our Savior. We believe the things he did on our behalf and believing in Jesus as Lord and living towards him. See, true saving faith will change how you live. You see, when they don't believe, when they don't get the answers they like, or when things around them are not going well, they don't believe that deeply because they shift to something else. Foreign alliances or foreign idols, one of the two. So Colossians 2 says this, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision in your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands that he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I want to put this verse up because I want you to see this. There are legal demands for a violation of the law, if you will. Use a modern-day court setting. If you commit a murder, there are legal demands, Right? If you're guilty of stealing a pack of gum, there are legal demands. Whatever it is that, that, that makes it just. And so that Jesus, God makes us to lie together in him, canceling the debt that stood against us with its legal demands because God nailed those things to the cross in Christ. Right? So there's you can pay your penalty or there's Jesus has paid your penalty. You get to be either this or that, right? Next verse is this in Romans 5, 9. It says, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. See, when the day of the Lord, when all of it comes, or when you die in the meantime, might be some kind of grander corporate thing, or might just be you. But when that moment takes place, it's then where we look and either we are paying for the debt we owe to God for our sin, or Christ has paid because we've been living in grace all along, right? And it's not just, hey, I believe that to be true, but I live in that daily. I get up to pursue that. It has changed my being and who I am. Notice it said in Colossians that you've been made alive, born again, made new, transformed, new creation, all that language. Because of what Christ has done, when you truly believe, it changes who you are. It changes how you live. So not just justify, but how much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God? See, God is not just this loving, benevolent being in the sky that we call upon when we're in need. But he is the just creator of all things. And he is loving and gracious and merciful. That is Jesus. That is why Jesus came to earth and lived and died and rose again. But he is also just and wrathful because penalty, because sin deserves penalty. 
What is justice to us? Well, it depends on the moment, right? If, if someone has done something, someone kills my wife or does something horrible, like justice is punishment. But then the problem is when I've done something wrong, justice is grace and mercy and forgiveness, right? See, God is just. And God either pays the penalty through his son, Jesus, or he meets out the penalty on us. But the upside is we have that moment today to understand that, to respond to that, to live in Jesus. More to come. Verse 8, and on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. Right on that day of the sacrifice, where either you are found and you are paying your own penalty, you're the sacrifice, or you're found righteous in Christ. He says, on that day, he says, I will mete out judgment. Now he's on, on the Lord's day, right? On that final moment, he says, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire, who dress up in their alliances to other nations, who are trusting others and worshiping false idols and not me. That's what he's saying. I will judge them for that. And again, for us, it's probably income and education. For us, it is money. In the American church, it is that end. It is, that is the thing that drives most of us. Education that leads to an income. And again, there's nothing wrong or inherently evil. It is all about what it does to our faith. When you prioritize faith over this, you can still prioritize this. But it's what do you worship first and foremost? Is it God or is it something foreign to God? Easy way to check that. Is it God? Is it eternal or is it something that you can't take with you? He goes on, verse 9, On that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold. The threshold means into a false worship, right? Into the doorway of a, a false worship house. On that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. Crossing over that threshold, he's speaking to their false worship of idols. So last week I had the chance to uh, to preach at a church in Santa Monica, and uh, been able to get a, a moment to kind of pay back some of the churches that we partner with, who covered for me last summer, covered when I had that kind of urgent surgery in the beginning of this year, and go preach for, for PJ and, and for Daniel Jansen, and, and this was for Trevor DeBenning uh, out in Santa Monica, and I'm sitting in traffic on Sunday afternoon on the way home, coming down the five, and you guys are all familiar with the Citadel, right? You know that big crazy building on the side of the freeway, right? So I'm in traffic, so I have lots of time to look at it. And I'm looking at those statues. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's the body of an ox. It's the wings of a bird, the face of a man. We drive by it all the time and don't think twice, probably. So guess what it is? No, I don't expect you to know. So it is an Assyrian idol called Lamassu. Lamassu. An Assyrian idol, Assyria. The people that are persecuting God's people, Assyria. Now, to be fair, God's people have a coming in this moment, right? They really do. Doesn't make it right, just makes it true. This was their protection deity or their protection idol. How far away from God are we when that doesn't even bother us? Or that really when the culture that we live in is like, hey, we should build that, right? That is literally a palace from a king who lived in the area we're studying. I'm sitting on the freeway, I'm looking at that, and I'm like, looks really familiar. Like, I know, I know, I should know what that is, and look it up, and it's from this time period. See how easy it is for it to be around us, 
and us not even know? And even if we know, just kind of be okay with it? Right, again, I'm not, again, I, I, will tell, I say over and over again, and I, I irritate a lot of people with this, but it's not a Christian nation. We're not governed by Jesus, not even a little bit, right? Built on some biblical foundation, some biblical principles, true, but not governed by God. And when this happens, we see this, we understand we are to be different than the world we live in. See, the world we live in thinks that's art, thinks that's history, thinks that's beauty. And it's cool looking, don't get me wrong, until I figured out what it was and it made me a little sick to my stomach. What made me sick to my stomach is not the building, it's that we're okay with it. And I'm not asking us to go light it on fire or boycott, just please, don't hear this wrong, right? Don't say you know me, you've never been here, all right? I have a history, it'll come back to us, right? So, I'm just saying we should know better. I'm just saying we should live distinctly, right? That we should be a set-apart people of God, and we're not. We look so much like the world around us that it's hard to discern who is Christ's and who is not. Verse 10 on that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gates, from the whale of the second quarter, a loud crash on the hills, wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traders are no more, all who weigh out silver are cut off. This is, judgment is coming to Judah, listen to the final part, for all the traders are no more, traders, that's like buyers and sellers, all who weigh out silver are cut off. Again, when our lives are oriented around income or education towards the ends of income, just remember, that dies with us, right? Yes, you can pass it on, but at one point, it'll stay here, and we can't have it. Verse 12, at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Listen, I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor, he'll, nor will he do ill. Complacency in men today is like breathing, I mean complacency in men in the church today. We are a unique church in that way. Most churches are about 60% women to 40% men. We're a good 50-50 on any given day. We aim at men. We disciple men. We call men out. We are harder on men than most. Let's face it, they deserve it. All the women are like, thank you. Yeah, see, like, yes, right? Dudes are like, right? Okay complacency. Hear what he says. Our Lord's not going to do this, and he's not going to do that. So I'm complacent. So I just keep going, head down, go to work, Monday through Friday, play golf, and sleep in on Sunday. I don't disciple my kids. I don't love my wife. I'm not leading her in the Word. In fact, if it wasn't for my wife, we wouldn't even go to church. That's the modern complacent man in the church. He says, I will punish the men who are complacent, those who, will say, who say the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Eh, it's going to go either way. Verse 13, their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, there's our strive for income and education, right? Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty men, the mighty man cries aloud there. Reminder, the great day of the Lord is coming. That's Zephaniah's theme. Judgment is coming. Death is coming. I want to skip down to chapter 2 just for the sake of time. Remember, it's a book overview. We can't cover all of it. Zephaniah chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says, Gather together, yes, 
Gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. What is God's first command, first antidote to this complacency, this idolatry, this shift of focus? What's his first call? Gather together. Right? Get together for worship. Right? Remember, we are a community people. Jesus doesn't save individuals to individualism. Jesus saves people to a community of faith, a local body called the church. That The calling is to gather. The calling is to learn. The calling is to be a body, members of one another. Right? A formally committed people group to one another. That we live in unique relationship to each other in this crazy world. We gather together for that purpose. So I'll put a note on the screen and a verse for you. God's command to gather, the first thing God calls them to is to remember to, they are to gather as a community of faith. They gather to worship, gather to pray, gather to sing, gather to learn. Right? They don't sit at home because they don't like the song they sang. They don't give up gathering because they're busy. They don't prioritize what they do Saturday, what they do over Sunday. They gather Everything else orients around the gathering scripturally. The Bible calls us to gather and then figure everything else out. It's like love your wife and your kids and then the rest of the world. You gather with your community of faith and then you figure out life in light of church. Hebrews 10 says this, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. A study was done by Barna Research Group. I like some things they do. I have some questions about some things they say and do. But this for sure is true. People who say they regularly attend church, if you ask people 20 years ago, do you regularly attend church? They say yes. It means they go at least three out of four weeks. Today you ask, do you regularly attend church? They say yes. It means at least once a month. Because the gathering isn't prioritized. So you're not the church. Church means assembly, means gathering, right? That's what it means. You're not the church when you're separate. You're the church when you gather. You're part of a local church. You're a member of a local church. You're a member of a body, as Paul says over and over again, to the church in Rome, the church in Corinth, others. Church is gathered. Church isn't a building. I don't say I'm going to the church. I'm going to be with the church. I'm going to worship with the church. Gathering is a part of the thing that guides us and protects us. Verse 3, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. He says, gather together and then practice together the things God calls you to do. Humility, righteousness, loving one another. Gather together and perhaps... Maybe God will restrain his anger from your city or your church or the church in America or the church in the world, whatever. Perhaps, maybe. Gather, be, start living as the people of God, living distinctly, not like the world around us. See, the world around us, they begin their week with what they want to do. They got to fit in work because they got to pay for it. And then everything else fits in after what they want. And often church comes if we have time. God is calling us to flip that for our sakes, that we would begin prioritizing God in our life first, and then all the other things that have to fit. 
Zephaniah chapter 3. I want to skip over to chapter 3 all the way down to verse 9. Here's how Zephaniah wraps up, or how God wraps up his message through Zephaniah. Now, he's going to go to the day of the Lord. He's going to go to that time where God judges evil and salvation begins to reign. So in other words, all of sin, all of wickedness, all of evil is judged, removed, and the people of God get to live in the presence of God. He, he goes forward to that moment. So we've heard the problem. We've heard what it looks like. We've talked about how we look like that, how we're not very different than that. We've heard the response. Listen, gather together, repent of that, live differently, live distinctly, be the people of God. And here's what comes next. Verse 9, for at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. Two things. He begins to see the change in people, that we will be changed, that our speech will be changed. Right? That's a great one for this moment in America. Our speech is horrible. The way we speak of others, those we disagree with, their speech, the people that are with me forever, their speech will be different. But listen to what he says. Remember Zephaniah's biracial prophet, this biracial prophet. He says, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers shall come, right? The message is you gather, you become God's people because that message will go to the world. That the message of the gospel is for all people. But when it doesn't live well in my people, it doesn't make it to other people. God says, be my people that the gospel will spread. He said, it'll go beyond the rivers, beyond the boundaries of Cush. It'll go to the nations. Here's another note for you. Reaching the world for Jesus. God claims a people for himself from all over the globe, not limiting who he loves, whom he loves. God gives his people the purpose of reaching the rest of the world. That's our job, and it begins here. It begins with us being God's people and then reaching the community we're in. And then because of the health in that, we can send to the rest of the world. Right? You can't send to the rest of the world if you're not healthy. You're just sending dishealth. You're just sending a cancer to the rest of the world. Be God's people, he says, and the rest of the world will see Jesus in you. We're going to go really quickly. Verse 11. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty or prideful in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Humility is a marker of following Jesus. And the reason for that is because the offense of the gospel is that we have to admit that we're sinful and broken and can't fix it that we're in need of a savior, that we can't do it. See, everything else drives us toward what can we do to fix the problem. Humility says we can't. That Christ alone can be the change. But God promises faithfulness to the world. Verse 13, those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Those who are left, who are God's people, they will be different, forever different. Their language, their actions, their behaviors, it will all be different. Verse 14, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, 
Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, Jesus, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Here's what he says. Notice he speaks to Israel. Israel's been conquered. The only people left are Judah, the city of Jerusalem. See, Israel means anyone who is governed by God, anyone who is God's people. That's why he says it will extend beyond Cush. It will reach the globe. He says the gospel will go forward from there. And he says, listen, we will worship God face to face. See, when we sing, we are responding to commands like this. Sing aloud, it says. See, it doesn't matter what kind of, we should be able to sing a song that's a hymn. It should be right out of the book of Psalms. It could be a brand new song. It could be in a style we like, it could be in a style we don't like. But when those words come up, we should be able to sing those words to God in obedience to God. If our hearts are in the right place, you can worship with anything. You can proclaim those words of dependency and love and submission to the God who created you. He says, sing aloud, rejoice and exult with all your heart. What has God done that deserves your singing today? Ask yourself that. Verse 16, on that day it should be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, and let, your not, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. He says the Lord will be present among you. Remember the words of Jesus. When two or more of you are out there all by yourselves, there I'm with you. Oh, wait, no, that's not what he says. When you gather... When two or more of you gather, when three people gather, when you gather as the church, there I am in the midst of you. When you gather, I'm present. We get to worship Jesus who is present here today. Not when we're out there, not when we're sitting at home. That's why we pulled the live stream. If you're on vacation, email us. We'll give you a link. It'll be different than next week. If you're homebound, we want to give it to you. But we don't want people to sit at home and think that's going to church because it's not. When you gather, he says, I'm with you. Watching it online should be the exception, not the rule. Because we are the people who gather and love to gather. Verse 18, he says, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. I will gather you who long to gather as God's people, who love church, who love to be the church, who love to gather with the people of God. He says, I'll gather you together eternally. Those of you who love this, you see that the Old Testament people got away from attendance, got away from gathering, got away from celebrating the festivals and the feasts, the things that God had given them to remind them of himself and point them to Jesus. They stopped doing them. He says, I will gather the people who long for it. Verse 19, behold, at that time I will deal with your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and the renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in, and at that time, I will gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. He says there's a day coming when it all comes to an end. That may be that great day, or that might be just the end of my life. That might be if America is judged for its evil, America is judged for its evil. I don't know. That could be anything, but there will be a day when Jesus returns, and it's a wrap. 
and sin is destroyed and repentance is no longer available and the church is all that's the true followers gathered people of Jesus are all that's left and we will live in his presence forever and so we go all the way back and it says remember the day of the Lord is near remember it comes without warning he says be the people of God gathered together turn from reliance on foreign things Turn from anything that isn't reliance on God. Gather together, be God's people, be distinct in your community that you may impact the world. So if you're here today, you've been walking with Jesus for a long time. You should be the ones, you should be the men and women who know how to deny this world and live for Jesus. We call upon you, we need you. We need you to teach the younger, those who are still new to the faith and growing in their faith, how do we live rightly focused on God in this world? See, mature in faith doesn't mean how long you've been walking with Jesus. It means how how far have you grown in Christ? And are you still fixed on growing in Jesus? To the new in the faith, you live in a world that will pull you in every direction, in a world that will shout loudly that you need all these other things. Let the church be that place where we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, where we follow him alone, where we learn to lay down this world and live for forever. If you've not yet come to faith, if you're here and desire to know the Jesus that forgives your sin, that loves you, that that leads you in a life, live towards how you're created to be, we would love to talk to you. We would love to share what that looks like to you. And if your parents and kids here today, do we talk about in our home what this world truly has to offer and how valuable it is in its right place? Or do we put it in front of God? Or do we set God rightly in his place and everything else is secondary? No matter what it is, no matter what it costs, that the value of following Jesus is first and foremost and primary in our families, and in our homes. Do we put Jesus first in our homes? Generations, would you pray with me? As we consider this, Lord, will you even now, will you speak those things to us that challenge us, that call us, Lord, to change? Belief causes change. May we believe something new and different and biblical and true and right according to you because of today. And will you give us practical ways to live that out? Will you give us ways where we can begin to put you first in new ways in our lives? Because all of us have things that crowd you out. All of us have priorities. All of us have things that creep in and lower our our, our focus on you. Lord, it's summer where people just, all of us, begin to take on that Let's go do this, let's go do that, let's go do this, let's go do that. We don't prioritize gathering. Help us, God. Cause us to want to value, to to really truly need that gathering time with one another. I know you've given us a love for it. Give me a love for it, Lord. Help us. Help us to create that here as a church, Lord. We pray these things in your name.